If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 15, and we'll be looking at the whole chapter. Why are you laughing? (laughs) It was September 3rd, 1857, when the SS Central America left the Panamanian port of Cologne for New York. On board were 477 passengers, 101 crewmen, and 15 tons of gold that was mined by the miners of the California Gold Rush. And on September 9th, the SS Central America encountered a Class II hurricane off the coast of the Carolinas. By September 11th, the sails were shredded, the, border, the boiler room was flooded, and the, sea wa- the ship was floundering at sea in 105-mile-an-hour winds. The next morning, two ships attempted to rescue the Central America. The first was the Marine And it succeeded in rescuing 153 people, mostly women and children. But the seas were so fierce that they couldn't transfer people by boat anymore. And the rescue attempt had to be halted. All day, the ship floundered. And about 8 p.m., the SS Central America sank to the bottom of the ocean, taking most of her passengers, all of her crew and captain with her. A Norwegian ship, the Ellen, managed to rescue 50 more people from the water. And a week later, three more people were rescued from one of the Central America's lifeboats. The sea had claimed so many souls and all of that gold. And there it lay on the bottom of the ocean, free for the picking for 130 years. But nobody knew where it was until 1987 when the Columbus America Discovery Group located the lost gold. Among the treasure were tons of freshly minted coins and gold bars and ingots just strewn on the floor of the ocean, still in perfect condition, being gold that didn't corrode or get crusty. One of the gold bars was named Eureka, weighing 933 ounces, 80 pounds of pure gold that sold for 80 or $8 million. Now, when you hear a story like that, you think, man, I wouldn't mind a bar like that. <laughs> but the question is, is when we think about a story like this, does our mind gravitate towards the gold or the people? Which is more valuable to you, the people or the gold? And you hear a story like this, you may say to yourself, well, you know, those people are dead. They're gone. Um, I don't know any of them. They're gone. The gold remains. And so why not get the gold? What if the Marine or the Ellen came to you and you were on board the USS Central America, and the captain shouted over and said, I can rescue you and your wife. Are you in the gold? (laughs) Or I can rescue you and your children or you and the gold. Or I can rescue you and all these other passengers, these strangers that you don't know who are standing by. 
watching, listening to see how you're going to reply, or the gold? Which one would you choose? The people or the gold? The fact is, all of those people who went down uh, with the Central America are still alive. Their souls are still alive. They all continue to exist consciously in either heaven or hell. For 150 years, they have been absent from their bodies, but their souls, their spirits will never die. And the world looks at them as dead and gone, and it values the gold more than them. Yet in the end, the gold is going to perish. The earth and its works will be burnt up. And you know what's going to remain? The souls of men and women and children. And they're all going to be in one of two places, heaven or hell. The greatest treasure on earth are the souls of men. People's souls are the great treasure. Not Diamonds, not rubies, not emeralds, not gold, but people. People are priceless because they are created in the image of God, because they have eternal souls, because Christ died for them, paid the ultimate price for them. God, being a man, gave himself up in a cross for them, which elevates their value far beyond all calculation. Satan, of course, however, does not value people. He has been a murderer from the beginning. He would just as soon we pitch people and keep the stuff. We have a world today where every year, 42 million babies are slaughtered. Most because the people don't want them and they're an inconvenience. That's 115,000 per day. We have people today who would kill a person to get a drug fix for a handful of cash because somebody made them angry. And our first impulse may be to think, oh, there's a lot of wicked people in the world. That is so terrible. That is so gruesome. That is so wrong. But what would you say to somebody who has what those people need to be rescued, those sinners, has the solution, has the cure for their souls, for their eternal souls, and yet won't give it to them? What do you say to those people? Jesus, speaking of the end times in Matthew 24, 12, says, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And you know what? These are those times. And you know what? Love has grown cold. People are more greedy, more selfish, more concerned about their stuff, their comfort, their momentary pleasures than they are 
with the souls of men. I'll take the gold, let my wife sink. I'll take the gold, let my children perish. I'll take the gold, let all these other strangers die. I want the gold. Now, I'm afraid we have been deceived by the world into loving the world more than our fellow men. Johann Wolfgang Gody, von Gody, the famous German writer and philosopher, had it right when he said, we are shaped and fashioned by what we love. And so what is that? What is shaping? What is molding? What is fashioning you into what you are? Is it? Your love for your fellow man? Or is it the world? John tells us in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, And the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Charles Dickens in A Christmas Carol has that scene when Scrooge is visited by the ghost of his late business partner, Jacob Marley. Marley's ghost is despairing and is there to warn Scrooge of the terrible fate that awaits him if he does not repent. He's dragging a huge chain made of steel cash boxes, padlocks, purses, and ledgers. The very things that Marley valued in life more than anything else. Those things that molded him and made him into what he became. And it is those things that he is forced to drag around with him in death. Marley confesses, quote, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will and of my own free will. I wore it, end quote. Marley's ghost then tells Scrooge about the weight and length of the strong coil that he bears. He says it was a full as heavy as long as this seven Christmas eves ago. You have labored on it since and is a ponderous chain. And it makes me wonder how many professing Christians are forging their own ponderous chain Scrooge by this time is trembling with fear he's trying to shake off the guilt brought upon him by Marley's apparition he's nervous and so he tries to make light of the situation and he says "Uh, but you were always a good man of business Jacob And this touches a painful nerve in Marley's ghost who cries out in anguish business Mankind is my business. The common welfare is my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. 
And I'm quite certain that many professing Christians have their own ponderous chains. They're adding to link by link because they refuse to make mankind their business. Oh, they come to church, sing the songs, call themselves Christians around other Christians. But that's all that is not making mankind your business. Of course, the greatest good we can do anyone is to share the gospel with them, to pray for them and to see them come to salvation in Christ. That is the great welfare that we can offer mankind. We have a cure for them. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, for what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? People need the Lord. And we have what they need. You can't wait for the world to go share the gospel with them. I mean, think about it. If we just sit in here in our little holy huddle and we sing our hymns and encourage one another and use Christian jargon, praise the Lord, God is good. And then we just think, well, the world can evangelize itself. It's never going to happen. It will never happen. Because all those in the world are blind. They're lost. They themselves need found. And so it's up to those who have been found to go seek out those who are lost. And this is what Jesus is going to teach us this morning in Luke 15. He's still ministering in Perea, east of the Jordan. He's headed towards Jerusalem to die on the cross. He knows this. He knows his time is short, and so he's really stepping up his evangelistic efforts. As a matter of fact, when you look at the text, from here on out, from about chapter 15 to 19, what you're going to see is Jesus reaching out to all of the down-and-outers. You'll just see all the losers of society. They are the main characters from here through chapter 19. It's like Luke accumulates all of Jesus' efforts to deal with the the social outcast because the religious establishment wouldn't have him. So now he's turning to the riffraff. And so we're going to look at Luke 15 and all of it, believe it or not. Miracles sometimes still happen. And I, all I'm going to do is I'm going to strike at the main theme of the whole passage. And it's two main points. Now there's a lot here. And I'm going to be going by some really great stuff. However, for the next four weeks, we're going to come back and look some more. (laughs) But I want to give you the big bite here. I want to give you the whole picture because it's going to drop on you like an 80 pound brick of gold. It's crushing and it's good. It will soften your heart. And it will shock you. It is so forceful that to break it up into pieces is a shame. So I'm not going to. I'm going to hit you with the whole thing. And then I'm going to break it up into pieces. So look at verse 1 of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
So he told them a parable. Here is the situation that gives rise to all three parables and the rest of Luke 15. The most despised people in Jewish society were tax collectors. They were despised because they were traitors, because they sold out their own people to extort money from them. They had Rome behind them so they could rob from their own fellow countrymen. They were despised. They were hated. And so here, tax collectors and sinners, the prostitutes, the people who are openly rebellious to the law of Moses are coming to Jesus. Jesus' miracles and teaching had little impact on the self-righteous, on the religious leaders. But it drew in those who knew they were sinners. Because Jesus came to seek and save sinners. And they came like bugs to the light. To get their sins forgiven. To get saved. Meanwhile, we read here in verse 2 that the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling. The Greek describes kind of murmuring. You know, when you're talking to somebody and you hear somebody in the background kind of like, look at who's coming to him. You know, he's. He's got some people. Look, there's tax gatherers. That woman's a prostitute. He's eating with them. Look at that. That kind of talk. The rabbis had a saying, let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him the law. The rabbis saw themselves as righteous. And when there was a wicked person, somebody openly rebellious, you wouldn't even give them the law of God. Don't even teach them the truth. Just let them perish because they're sinners and we're not. We've done what right and they haven't. And because they've abused the grace of God, let them perish. Let them go to hell. It's exactly what's going on here with these scribes and Pharisees. They saw themselves as righteous. In fact, that's exactly what we read in Luke 18, verse 9, where Luke says they trusted themselves that they were righteous. It also reveals that they had no love for their fellow man. They had no joy in knowing that sinners were coming to repentance and salvation. They could care less. They were just mad that that person might end up in in the kingdom of God with them when they have done what's right, and that person's done what's wrong. And each parable teaches the same basic lesson. And the last parable, it teaches us far more. So we're going to spend several weeks looking at that in the weeks to come. But I'm just going to get at the main two points here. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to approach the text thematically rather than sequentially. We're going to look at all the pieces of each parable that relate to one point and then all the pieces of those parables that relate to the other point. And the first point is this. We need to seek lost souls. Look at verse 4. Jesus, in response to the grumbling of the scribes and Pharisees, says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? You know, shepherds live with their sheep. Each sheep was known and recognized by the shepherd. Now, I don't know if you've been around sheep. You know, I grew up in the mountains, so I've been, you know, trying to get to my favorite fishing hole and had to wait till sheep and sheep just went by. You know, the guy's herding them across the road. And when I read this, it just makes me wonder, how does a shepherd even recognize that one's gone? How do you even count a moving mass of fuzzballs? 
But you know what? If you live with your sheep all day, every day, you get to know your sheep. That's like Jesus said in John 10, verse 27, you know, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And so when the shepherd knows his sheep and he sees that one of them's gone, it's a problem because those sheep are valuable to him. And it's not just because they give him wool or because leg of lamb is tasty to eat. They're like pets. They're like pets. He has a relationship with each of his sheep. You hear somebody say something like, oh, man, I had to take my dog or my cat to the vet. And, you know, it cost three thousand dollars to get them fixed. And, you know, if you're you don't have a dog or a cat and you're not an animal, if you go, what? Man, why don't you just put them out of their misery and bury them in the garden? You spend three thousand dollars on a dog and a cat. You can get them at the pound for free. I mean, they're less than a dime a dozen. But you know what? When you've raised that dog, when you've trained that dog, when you've played with that dog or that cat, you don't train cats. You try to train cats. You you get a relationship with your animal. You like your animal. And so when the animal gets sick, then $3,000, though painful, is reasonable. Why? Because the animal is valuable to you because you've invested all of that time, all of that resource, all of that energy into it and have a relationship with it. And so it is with the shepherd here. The shepherd loses one of his sheep. And so he leaves the 99 and goes looking for it so he can bring it back. And of course, Jesus represents the shepherd. The sheep represent sinners, not believers, as is sometimes the case, but just sinners. If Jesus were to shun sinners, he would be seeking to save his own reputation and save face before the religious leaders. But he's not there to save himself. He's there to save sinners, to seek and save that that which is lost. Look at verse 8 where we encounter the beginning of the second parable. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Unlike sheep, coins don't lose themselves. Sheep wander off by themselves. Coins are lost by neglect. Jesus here is stressing the need to seek What is valuable and lost? Both sheep and coins are valuable. The woman obviously is poor. She lives in a house with a dirt floor. And uh, the coin here, the silver coin, is a drachma, an entire day's wages. And if you're really poor, that's a lot of money. Now, houses at that time didn't have usually windows. The houses of the poor, bigger houses did, but little houses didn't. They were basically just a dark box with a door on it. And so the woman has dropped her coin. It's hit the dirt, the dust on the floor, and it's disappeared. And now she can't find it. So she lights a lamp and gets out her broom, and she carefully sweeps the floor until she finds her coin. And when she does, she's excited. And she calls all of her women friends in because she has found it. We'll see that in a minute. But the parallels here are pretty close, aren't they? You've got something that's valuable, something that's lost, and something that's sought after. Now, for the last parable, look at verse 11. And 
He said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. The younger of the two sons is greedy. He's your typical young man who wants to go out and do what he wants to do. He doesn't want his dad telling him what to do. He doesn't be living at home anymore. Whatever that was, Um, there's noises coming up here from the speakers. Um, He doesn't want to be at home. He doesn't want to be under the thumb of his father. So he says, I want my inheritance now. And we can't even go into all the details, but it's so bad. This is such a huge insult to the father. Look at the middle of verse 12. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger man gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. The younger son, now with cash in hand, says, I'm out of here, dad. Where are you going, son? I don't know, but I'm out of here. And he takes off. He takes off to squander on sinful, indulgent things what his father has worked a lifetime to accumulate. And it is this point, the son is lost. His father doesn't even know where he's at. He's in a different country. He's insulted his father. He's shamed his father. He's departed from tradition. He's disobeyed the laws of Moses. He's disobeyed the traditions of the Jews. He's abused his father's grace and he's jumped into sin headlong. He's lost. Look at verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. The young man begins to suffer the consequences of his greed, of his pride, of his arrogance. And, you know, when he had cash. And he was spending it, he probably became more of a jerk than ever. Yeah, Mr. Big Bucks. Yeah, I buy this. I buy that. Look at my new this. You come over here. I'll pay this woman to love me. He thinks he's hot stuff. He's sucking up all the booze and women and carnality he can stuff in his body. And then what happens? It all comes to an end. He runs out of money. And a famine just so happens to come upon the land at the same time. The economy is extremely tight. He has to get a job and it's feeding pigs. And he's so hungry he's starving even to eat the pig slop. Jesus says no one gave him anything. Why? Because he was a loser. And he became more of a loser as soon as he got what he wanted. He didn't have any friends. The only friends he had when he had money were freeloaders who put up with his arrogance and pride so they could leech off his money. And now his money's gone. They've abandoned him and he's alone. Lost as he can be, living in a foreign country, penniless, friendless, defiled by unclean pigs, The young man is at the bottom, but then by the grace of God snaps out of it. He snaps out of his proud, self-destructive attitude 
and his mind run home, runs home to his father and he thinks, my father really loves me. Not these friends I've bought, but my father is the one who really loves me. And, you know, you may be thinking, you may have somebody that you're thinking of right now, some prodigal in your life. How do you reach them when they're gone? You don't even know where they're at, maybe. Well, you can always pray for them. If you know where they're at, you can email them, write them a letter, give them a phone call. Pray that they come to their senses. In all three parables, the sheep, the coin and the son are all lost. In all three parables, the sheep, the coin, and the son all have value. In all three parables, the sheep, the coin, and the son are looked for to be found. And the lesson to learn here is this. Because all are born into this world lost, and all have value because they're created in the image of God, because they have eternal souls, and because Christ died for them, we need to, as Christians, value the souls of lost men. Now, sometimes, you know, you see these people, and you can kind of despise them because they just, are entrenched in sin. You know, maybe you you find somebody, you run into somebody who's just, you know, got tattoos everywhere and a weird haircut and, you know, eyebrow posts and tongue things. And, you know, they're just, looks like somebody shot them with ear piercings. I don't know. They're, they're just glistening with body owies, you know? And they, they dress weird and it's black or whatever. And, and, you know, you look at that and you just think, man, what is wrong with that person? You know what's wrong with that person? The same thing that was wrong with you before you came to Christ, before you were sought and found. And if it were not for the grace of God, you'd be sitting there probably with them. Sometimes we we can despise those people who are entrenched in sin, who are mean. You know, the mean boss, the mean neighbor, the mean coworker, the one with the foul mouth, the one who just plunges himself into sin and loves those things God hates and we can just want to shun them because after all, look at them. They're disgusting. You know what they are? They're just what all of us are apart from the grace of God. And we have what they need. We have what they need. And so we need to take the words of Marley's ghost, the whole theme of what Dickens was trying to create through that story and make the welfare of mankind our business. You know, you may be a banker, you may be a housewife, you may be a truck driver. It doesn't matter what you are. Mankind needs to be your business. Sure, your job is so you can pay rent and buy food and drive your car. That's fine. But your boss may need the Lord. Your coworker may need the Lord. Your money can be used for the ministry. Your life is the way it is so you can be in the world, not of the world, and have an impact for Christ. And if you've been deceived and deluded by the world, and usually it happens by degrees, and soon your love of the your fellow man is grown cold, 
If you'd take the gold and let your wife or children or neighbors perish, you know, you, you might be thinking, well, what can I do? I'm not praying for the lost. I don't share the gospel with anybody or I rarely do. And usually it's short and it's so pathetic. They couldn't get saved even if they wanted to. Money, things, pleasure is what excites you. I'm not excited about people coming to Christ. What is the solution? Well, it may be that you don't know Christ. It may be that you are lost. And that is why you don't have the love of Christ within you. Paul says in Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out in your heart. Speaking to believers, if you are a believer, the love of God is poured out in your heart. It should be in there. Granted, we may reject it. We may ignore it, but it's in there. But if you don't know Christ, you don't have it in there and you don't really care because you know what? You're living for the world. I mean, you may come to church. You may call yourself a Christian, but that doesn't make mankind your welfare. You may sing hymns. That doesn't make mankind your business. And so you may need to come to grips with your own lostness and realize that Jesus died for you. He lived this perfect life. God became a man, lived a perfect life so that you through faith in him could receive the free gift of eternal life. And maybe you right now in your pew need to come to grips with this and realize I'm lost and I need found. Run to the shepherd. He'll save you. He's the only one who can. But let's just say for a moment that you have placed your faith in Christ. You do know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. You have been born again. You have the Holy Spirit within you. And the love of God has been poured out in your heart. But by degrees, by deception, by distraction, by whatever, your man, your love for fellow man has grown cold. What do you need to do? First, spend some time this week with the Lord in prayer and just tell him. Just tell him. Say, Lord, I don't love people like I should. I I don't. I'm more excited about getting a new car than seeing somebody come to Christ. I'm more excited about my job or my hobby than I am sharing the gospel with somebody. I don't really, I don't have a love. And I need you to fix me because I can't fix myself. And you just tell him and you keep telling him that and he'll answer a prayer like that. You know, he will. Second, work at increasing the value of your fellow man in your heart. Get a love for people. Now, here's a little paradox. Because if you don't have a love for people, it's hard to get a love for people. Now, remember why the shepherd loves his sheep? Because he spends time with them. Because he invests energy and resources, has a relationship with them. You want to get a love for people? Then get out there. Get outside of your comfort zone for the for the Lord, for their souls. Tell them about Jesus. Yes, you may lose some friends. Yes, you may be scoffed at. Yes, 
You may be rejected. Yes, may people may think you're weird or you've lost your head and one of those weird Jesus freaks. But hey, we're supposed to be. That's what we're called to be. Like Christ, who offended multitudes. And when you invest in something, then you, be, you care about it more. You know, if you don't have any money invested in the stock market, why look at all those little numbers in the, in the newspaper? I mean, what do they mean? But, you know, if you put $1,000 down on some little penny stock, all of a sudden that one little number means something to you, doesn't it? You put $10,000 down every week, you're looking to see how your money's doing. You put a million dollars down, you're looking at the paper three times a day to make sure that your investment is being taken care of. Well, if you start sharing your faith, start praying for people, start strategizing how to get people to Christ, you know what's going to happen? You're going to care. You're going to care more and more. And the harder you try, the more you're going to care. Why? Because you've had more invested. You know, there's times when God just plops somebody down into your lap who says, what must I do to be saved? You know, it's kind of a T-ball. You know, God puts them on the little stick and then he puts the gospel bat in your hand. And then he says, swing. And you say, um, well, you need to believe in Jesus, uh, who died on the cross for his sins and was buried and thrown. And the person says, okay. And they break down. And they say, what do I need to do? I say, I guess I'll pray with you. And then they come to Christ. And you know what? It's exciting. It's thrilling. And you're going to have some joy over that. But not anywhere like the joy if you're out there day after day being rejected. Day after day talking to people and talking to people. And it seems like you've talked to a thousand people and no one has come to Christ. And you keep thinking, man, Lord, where is this field that is white with harvest? I can't even find a single grain of wheat. And then all of a sudden you're going to talk to somebody and tears are going to start coming down their face. And they're going to say, I need that. And you're going to go, Oh, and you're going to talk to him and you're going to tell everybody, you know, I talked to this guy and he came to Christ or talked to this woman and she accepted Christ and you're going to rejoice. Why? Because you've invested much. But you know what? If you're more concerned about your plasma TV and your car and your hobby, I'm telling you, when somebody comes to Christ, like, oh, good. You'll be just like the scribes and the Pharisees. No love for your fellow man. Second thing we learn from this text, look at verse 5. We need to rejoice when sinners are found. Here we see the response of the shepherd who finds a lost sheep. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, this lost sheep, rejoicing. And he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And they're like, Great! We're so glad you lost your sheep. And they might even like sheep, but they're glad for the guy. But they get great. But if they were fellow shepherds, they'd be more glad. They would be more glad because they go, oh, yeah, I'm so glad you found that little three-legged sheep. That one that we've been nurturing and giving so much attention to. That is great. 
And then comes the punchline to the parable. Look at verse 7. Just so. I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And just stop there. Notice here there's joy in heaven over sinners who are who's in heaven. Jesus. Saints, believers who have died and gone to heaven and angels. There's joy. They're up there going, oh, yeah. Someone came to Christ. And here Jesus reveals the meaning of the parable. The lost sheep represent the lost sinners. Finding the lost sheep represents the lost soul come to repentance and faith in Christ. And Jesus goes on to make a contrast between the rejoicing that occurs over the lost sheep that is found that is rejoicing in heaven and another group. Look at verse 7 again in the middle. Then over 99 righteous persons that need no repentance. Now, who do you think these 99 people are who need no repentance? Really should be 99 people who think they need no repentance. Notice that in verse 4, the shepherd leaves the 99 to go fetch the one that's lost. Who's that? The scribes and the Pharisees and anyone who doesn't have love for their fellow man. Anyone who values themselves or the things of the world above their fellow man. This fits earlier with what Jesus said in Luke 14, 24, where he's, he tells the, that you aren't going to eat my dinner. Religious leaders, you aren't going to be in the kingdom of heaven eating dinner with me. And if you were to go back to Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 32, it's right after Jesus calls Matthew. And Matthew is so excited. He's come to Christ. He was lost. He was a tax collector, Levi. And he was found and he's psyched. I mean, he's just jazzed because he's now got this relationship with Jesus. He's got his sins forgiven. and He's going to tell all of his other wicked friends. So he gets all the tax collectors and all the sinners together and has a big feast. And what do we encounter? Verse 30, the Pharisees and scribes begin to grumble at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is, he has not come to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need repentance. So what happened was, is Jesus comes to Israel, God's chosen people, and the leaders there are rejecting him and rejecting him. And so what does he do? He goes to those who know they're sinners And he welcomes them and gives the gospel to them that they might be saved. Look down at verse 9 where we see the response of the woman who found her lost coin. We read, and when she has found it, this lost coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. And what's interesting here is it says she calls in the Greek, you can see she calls her women friends and her women neighbors. The other guy calls his men, his male friends and neighbors, all his shepherd buddies probably. Here, this woman calls all the women of the neighborhood and goes, guys, what? I lost one of my coins. And I started looking. I took the furniture out. I turned on my lamp and I've been sweeping the floor for hours. And I finally found it. And here it is. They go, oh, great. That's so wonderful. 
because they're probably poor too, poor neighborhood. And they rejoice with her. This is only normal. Look at verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And notice here, Jesus doesn't say that specifically the angels rejoice, but that there is joy before the angels or in the presence of the angels. Somebody else is rejoicing before the angels. Who, who could that be? Jesus and all the saints who have gotten there after death. This doesn't mean the angels aren't rejoicing too. Of course, they're going to rejoice in the things that God does. But notice the emphasis is there is joy among sinners who are saved by grace when other sinners are saved by grace. Because they've been there and they've had that happen to them. And I can just imagine what it's like in heaven. I, you know, when you think about right now in heaven, there are people coming to Christ all over the world. There must be constant joy there, right? I mean, he says there's rejoicing there. And so as people come to Christ, there just must be, there just must be like a major celebration happening all the time. Oh, another one. Oh, another one. Oh, another one. You know, you can even say it fast enough. This constant reason to praise Christ for what he has done as people from all over the world are coming to Christ more and more. And this is a rebuke to all of us to one degree or another who have not valued our fellow men as much as we should have. And we all done it. I confess to you. But sinners are not found unless saints pray for their salvation and preach the gospel to them. And that's our responsibility. Now let's look down at verse 17 and see what happened to the prodigal son. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And this is the turning point in this son's life. It says he came to himself. He came to himself. In other words, he got a clue. He realized his folly. He realized he blew it. He realized he sinned against his father. He was stupid the way he handled his inheritance, that he was just a mess up. And this is called repentance. He had a change of mind about the way he was living, about his sinful lifestyle, that it was wrong, and then he turned back. Back to his father. Repentance is to have a change of mind away from sin and towards Christ. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And there are so many great things here. It's going to take us four weeks to unpack them. But I'm telling you. This is major good. First, notice the love of the father. The father's been looking for his son. He doesn't even know where his son is. That means he's been standing in the front yard looking day after day after day on the horizon. He doesn't even know what direction. He's just scanning, scanning, scanning. And you know he's praying that his prodigal son's going to come home. He's invested a whole life, and now he's investing more in trying to Pray his son back. 
Second, notice the father is not bitter. He's not unforgiving. He runs to embrace his son before his son even says a word. That's pretty incredible. And running for an older man was not kosher in those circles. Notice also, thirdly, the son confesses his sin, his unworthiness for what he has done. And the father freely forgives him, is reconciled to him, which is apparent. Look at verse 22 and following. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him and put a ring in his hand and shoes in his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son For this, my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Every sinner has great value to God and God's just waiting for him to come home. Come to Jesus. Come to the shepherd. Be found by God. The father has open arms. He's waiting. As soon as you turn from your sin and you start pursuing him, he's like, I got you. And there's a loving embrace and there's kissing and then there's grace, grace upon grace. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ an eternity of grace given to unworthy sinners, though they have not done anything to deserve any grace. He not only saves them and forgives them, then he lavishes upon them, as Paul says, the riches of his grace. It's amazing. The best of all he had. Look at verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard the music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Here we have the ungodly response of the older son. He's bitter He's angry, he's unforgiving, and even though the younger son has now come back, he's left his carnal lifestyle, he has no joy in that. Do you know why? Because he's angry over the inheritance that was lost. He loved the world more than his brother. And since his brother squandered a chunk of the inheritance, he hates him because he'd rather have the money than his brother's soul saved. He was like the scribes and the Pharisees and represents the scribes and Pharisees and all those who love themselves and the world more than the souls of men. Look at the middle of verse 28. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. You have never given me. And now he uses a young goat instead of even a cat. Even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, let me ask you this. Do you really think that older son never disobeyed? Have you, did you ever have any, you have any kids who never disobeyed? What's his problem? He's deluded about what? Just how righteous he is. He's blind to his own sin and his own rebellion. He's envious that this forgiven son has been welcomed and given grace upon grace. 
He wishes his father had not received his wayward brother back. Look at verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. What? And notice he won't even call him his brother. This son of yours. I've had people in counseling, couples who are, you know, not doing well. And the woman refers to her husband as that man. And the husband refers to his wife as that woman. Not my wife or her first name, but yeah, well, that woman. Use the far demonstrative. That's exactly what's happening here. He's so bitter and angry that this son of yours had squandered your wealth. Devoured it with prostitutes. And now what are you doing? You're giving grace to him. You're being kind to him. And he's, he's done all that. Well, he doesn't have a clue. The father isn't rewarding his son for his rebellion. He's just gracious. Look at verse 31. And he said to him, son, you were always with me and all I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found, consumed with selfishness and greed and the love of the world and love of his own self and love of his own power and an unforgiving heart. His father brings him up short and says, this brother of yours. And you know what? The combined force of these three parables is pretty weighty, isn't it? More than 15 tons of gold. And they tell us that we need to seek those who are lost and perishing and make the welfare, the eternal welfare of mankind our business because we're Christians and we're followers of Christ. And secondly, when a sinner comes to saving faith in Jesus, we need to rejoice and we need to rejoice big time. Because Christ does, because the angels do, because the saints in heaven do. Because they were lost and then they were found. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these three parables which teach us such a valuable lesson. Help us to love the souls of men more than anything this world has to offer. Make us long and ache to see people saved. And as we invest in praying for them, as we invest in sharing the gospel, as we invest in trying to order our lives in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify you, may we hunger to see them saved. May we make the welfare of mankind our business so that we don't forge our own ponderous chains of selfishness and greed and worldliness. And Father, may we leave here today committed, committed once again to seek you out and ask you for grace that you might help us become the men and the women that we need to be so we can make an impact in this world for Christ. We have the truth. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the love of God poured out in our hearts. We know we have no excuse, but Father, we still need more help. Help us, we pray, that we might be children, 
sons, daughters who give you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.